0: We have a slightly diminished uh, group today because of the memorial service for Tom Powers is going on at the same time, and also a lecture on uh, Japan. So we are a little fewer this afternoon, but nonetheless very interested in both the speaker and the topic. Uh, James D. is a stalwart of British studies. Uh, he got his... B.A. in comparative literature from the University of Rochester and his PhD in classics from the University of Texas. He arrived here just shortly after the Whitman shooting from the tower in 1966 uh, and this was at a time when most of the books in the library were still in the tower so uh, in that sense, James is a kind of relic because there are not very many of us who go back that far, uh, except for David, yes. David, David not only subscribes to more newspapers than anyone else, he's been here longer than anyone else. So he holds a record. Uh, James has been the, uh, uh, he taught at the University of Illinois of Chicago from 1972 to 1999 and served as the departmental chair for eight years. And today, this afternoon, he's going to talk to us about heroes of the intellect, unbelief, and enlightenment values across the ages. James.
1: There is, as you may fear, a handout, if you know my tradition. So I will send, and I brought enough for you to have two apiece, so you may... (laughs) Read in stereo. No, it's seven. Fear not. But they're packed with information that I'm sure you'll be happy to have. Send that on down. All right. Over the past four decades, I've delivered almost 70 presentations to non-captive audiences. And I regard the three done here in chronological order as gold, silver, bronze. When the idea first occurred to offer Roger this paper, I felt sure it couldn't compete with any of them, and surpassing them with platinum was beyond my powers. So there was already a downward spiral, and this one would be even worse. Happily, a solution was in plain sight. When I said gold, silver, bronze, most of you thought of the Olympics. But for someone with a classical background, there's another possibility. The archaic poet Hesiod recounts five ages of mankind in his Works and Days, letter 1A. An odd text with a famous passage, Pandora's box. It wasn't a box, it was a pythos, a large jar. Hesiod's five ages are gold, silver, bronze, heroes, iron. The last being Hesiod's own time filled with misery and corruption. The intrusion of heroes into the metal sequence reflects the well-established traditions of the Argonautic expedition, the Theban cycle, the labors of Heracles, and the Trojan War, all known to have taken place hundreds of years before Hesiod's eighth century BCE. So I embraced the Hesiodic sequence and accordingly dedicate this talk to heroes of the intellect, those brave individuals who have rejected conventional religious opinion since the ancient world by delightful coincidence i was recently reminded that an eminent classical scholar had already shown the way for the hero's image in a colloquium for the classics department february 22nd jason nethercutt son of ut's longtime professor bill nethercutt gave a fine paper on the roman poets ennius and lucretius in conversation afterward he mentioned that there was an article on lucretius also 1a written by vincent's Buchheit. Titled Triumph des Geistes, Triumph of the Intellect, referring to one of the most remarkable passages in Latin literature coming up shortly. I'm not the only one who thinks that unbelief has a heroic quality. Some of you may have been lured here by the announcement, which has five teaser phrases. I'll highlight each one when we get there. Today I'll be discussing the development of certain ideas often described as enlightenment values said to be under attack from opponents, religious and secular, claiming they have failed one way or another. Among the chief defenders of these values is Steven Pinker, whose new book, Enlightenment Now, 1B, focuses squarely on this issue. I've added a companion volume, also 1B, by the late Hans Rosling, a celebrity of PBS and TED Talk fame, known for his moving colored circle graphs that move from lower left to upper right, and for sword swallowing. Pinker pays him a heartfelt tribute because both have spent years trying to persuade people that things have gotten almost incredibly better in what used to be the third world in the last century. Rosling's book is short, very accessible, and really worth your time. Also at letter B are just a few recent discussions of secularism, liberalism, rationalism, atheism, etc. My focus will be on skepticism and outright unbelief in divine beings as cardinal elements in the emergence of critical thought. Claims about divinities will be assessed from the vantage points of reality through science and critical scholarship and morality through philosophy, since they provide the strongest arguments against divine beings and in favor of human independence. Among the pivotal moments in this rapid fire survey will be two of the stereotypical three modern revolutions, Copernican and Darwinian, which focus on reality, leaving aside Freudian, perhaps now neuroscientific, for lack of time. By contrast, the principal arguments against divinities from capital M morality were already laid out in the ancient world. Because the general trajectory is fairly well known, I'll offer some sidebar stories, unusual or downright exotic bits that illustrate the main themes, but come, as they say in baseball, from left field. Number two, classical period. My principal resource in this is the first book in English on ancient atheism in more than 90 years, Cambridge professor Tim Whitmarsh's Battling the Gods, 2A. He notes, contrary to what many have suggested, that belief in divine beings is not the default setting of human minds and societies, that there is no innate God gene, as some have carelessly said. Whitmarsh observes that wherever you find claims about theism, you also find skepticism. He cites mid-century British anthropologist Edward Evans Pritchard, also at 2 who says in his 1937 book on the Azande, faith and skepticism are alike traditional. However, he is speaking of witch doctors and not gods. There may be faint signs of skepticism as early as Homeric epic, which unlike biblical texts was never regarded as sacrosanct or infallible. There's an entertaining moment in the Odyssey, to be, where Telemachus may be the first sarcastic youngster, youngster in world literature. The chronology implies he's not literally a teenager. His newly returned father, Odysseus, tells him that in their battle against 108 suitors, they will have as protectors Athena and Father Zeus, and by implication, nobody else. The son's response, those are indeed fine defenders that you mention, even though they sit on high in the clouds, seems a bit snarky. (laughs) The words translated as indeed and even though are subtle particles that reveal a speaker's real attitude. It doesn't diminish the appeal of Telemachus' momentary skepticism that those two divinities do intervene. And I should say that the most recent scholarly commentator thinks it isn't ironical. Professor Whitmarsh begins his survey with the Homeric and Hesiodic gods, who, as many of you know, did not pretend to be paragons of virtue. Being immortal and powerful, they didn't have to be. They're described as engaging in all sorts of non moral activities. In Hesiod, Cronos, aka Saturn, castrates his father, Uranos, and swallows his children whole. In the Iliad, Zeus recounts to his wife Hera his sexual conquests, and in the Odyssey, Ares and Aphrodite have a sexual encounter, are caught in a golden net by Hephaestus, her husband, and the male gods, invited to view the couple in flagrante delicto, find it hilarious. Such behavior seemed scandalous to the first anti-tradition critic, Xenophanes, who complained in a surviving fragment to see that Homer and Hesiod have attributed to the gods everything that is a shame and reproach among humans, stealing and committing adultery and deceiving each other. Two other fragments are similarly provocative. One, also 2C, may be the first example of cultural relativism applied to human societies. Quoting, Ethiopians say their gods are flat-nosed and dark-skinned, the Thracians that theirs are blue-eyed and red-haired. The other, to see again, more imaginatively applies the idea to other species, quoting, but if cattle and horses and lions had hands, or could draw with hands, and make things as humans do, horses would draw the shapes of gods like themselves, and cattle like cattle, and each of them would make bodies such as they themselves have. That skepticism toward one type of claim about divinities doesn't mean that Xenophanes was an atheist. Another fragment, 2C last time, speaks of one god, greatest among gods and men, in no way similar to mortals, either in body or in thought. The first 2C passage is our initial example of a morality-based argument against traditional gods. The ancient Hellenes also came up with the first reality-based arguments as well. Several of the philosophers we, rather unfairly, call pre-Socratics offered explanations for effects previously considered divinely caused, thereby removing the gods from the material world. As Whitmarsh puts it to D, the pre-Socratics mark the beginning of a journey leading ultimately to what modern atheists call naturalism, the belief that the physical world is the sum total of reality, that nature rather than divinity structures our existence. Since this is a rapid-fire survey, I'll simply mention the great names and their central ideas without elaboration. There was Thales, 6th century BCE, who presumably, using Babylonian information, predicted a solar eclipse in 585 and said that water was the primal element. Anaximander, also 6th century, more abstractly, focused on the infinite or unlimited, Aperon, and he speculated in purely material terms on the origins of animal and human life from water. Anaximenes, 6th century again, preferred air as primary, forming solid objects through compacting. Whitmarsh spends almost two pages on a much less famous figure, Hippo of Samos. Like Thales, he argued for water and more remarkably, seems to have asserted that the mind is entirely corporeal. He was attacked by contemporaries for being atheist, and as Whitmarsh says, also 2D, he may even be the first person in Greek history to have gained this reputation. The next name in the roll call of heroes is Anaxagoras, who explored natural phenomena and proposed mind, nous, as the central underlying essence. He was put on trial in Athens in the 430s for impiety, and here Whitmarsh suggests, 2D again, this may have been the first time in history that an individual was prosecuted for heretical religious beliefs. Now the word heretical is a bit anachronistic. There was no formal orthodoxy to which an Athenian had to subscribe, just a set of conventions that should be observed. The last of the heroic pre-Socratics are Leucippus and his student or co-worker Democritus, who both flourished in the 5th century and proposed the idea of the atomon, the uncuttable, as the fundamental unit of the physical world. This, of course, is the etymological ancestor of modern atomic theory. And it's quite striking that Democritus reportedly emphasized tukke, chance, rather than divine superintendence as a significant, significant factor in events. So the pre-Socratics had already leveled critiques against the ordinary Hellenic view of gods and the physical world, and it only got worse. The leading intellects of the 5th and 4th centuries continued this tradition of doubting or denying the gods and endorsing various forms of skepticism or materialism. Whitmarsh features three late 5th century figures, Protagoras, Prodicus, and the notorious oligarch Critias. Protagoras was famous for saying in the first sentence of a lost treatise titled On the Gods, 2e, concerning the gods I cannot know whether they exist or whether they do not or what form they have. Similarly, Prodicus who achieved proverbial status as a universal genius in his lifetime is reported in a papyrus fragment of the later philosopher Philodemus to have said, also 2e, the gods that are believed in do not exist nor do they have knowledge. Finally, Critias, leader of the murderous 30 tyrants, wrote a play called Sisyphus from which one long passage survives, 2E last time, outlining a completely secular origin for religion and morality. I quote a small part of the 42-line text, some man of ingenious and wise intellect invented for mankind the fear of the gods so that there would be a source of terror for the wicked if they did or said or thought up anything in secret. At that point, he introduced the concept of the divine. Those three, and numerous others, are often lumped together under the term sophists. They are often maligned, as in the negative connotations of sophistry and sophistical. But their importance in the development of thought is indisputable. Albin Lesky's monumental history of Greek literature pays a striking tribute to these thinkers, To f No other intellectual movement can be compared with the sophistic and the permanence of its results. What they broke up was never put together again in Greek life and the questions which they posed have never been suffered to lapse in the history of Western thought down to our day. W. K. C. Guthrie's The Sophists, part of his monumental history of Greek philosophy, quotes Lesky's fine statement, but not everyone is comfortable with this assessment. I cite a 1992 op ed column, 2G, of Gary Wills, who has a classics PhD, although he left the field for greener pastures with Nixon agonistes back in 1970. He read and was appalled by a conversation between Bernard Knox, one of the most eminent classicists of the era, and Lynn Cheney, then head of the National Endowment for the Humanities, quoting, When Knox pointed out what all classical scholars know by now, that the sophists forged the intellectual tools for rational analysis within our tradition, Cheney expressed shock. She still lives at the simplistic level of history that treats sophists, a term covering many very different thinkers of 5th century Athens, as the villains of history. They were relativists. They did not believe in absolute values. How can he defend such people? Instead of learning from a man who knew what he was talking about, she tried to instruct him. We've already seen that the intellectual tools for rational analysis go back before 5th century Athens, but Wills' larger point is valid. Rational analysis precludes absolutism, especially the unexamined kind. Whitmarsh enlists the great historian of the Peloponnesian War, Thucydides, among the early atheists, noting that he never suggests there are divine beings except in deluded human minds, much less that they intervene in human affairs in strong contest to his predecessor, Herodotus, who seems to have had a firm belief in a divine and ultimately moral cosmos. Quoting 2H, the history can reasonably be claimed to be the earliest surviving atheist narrative of human history. Some of the most powerful moral arguments against the divine were posed in the era of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. I'll focus on just two. The first is the Euthyphro dilemma posed by Socrates in Plato's earliest dialogue. Many philosophers to this day regard it as the most potent argument against the claim that moral values come from the gods, or capital G, god. The text is fairly opaque in the original, so I'm quoting a compact paraphrase from British philosopher A.C. Grayling in his book, The God Argument, to I, is something good because the gods say it is, or do the gods say it is good because it is good independently of them? Grayling adds that only a super zealot would agree that if God said murder and rape were good, they would be. But most people have asked would almost certainly say that God is the ultimate authority for morals. And if it was pointed out that this is is impaling yourself on the wrong horn of the euthyphro dilemma, they would probably say that God can't endorse immorality. God has to be perfectly good, rather an infringement on an omnipotence. And I'll come back to this. Another attack on conventional ideas was posed by a much more obscure philosopher in Aristotle's lifetime, one Eubulides. also 2i. He's not even mentioned in Whitmarsh's book. He created seven paradoxes, at least two of which are still considered extremely challenging. One is the liar paradox, is I am lying, true or false, which UT's Mark Sainsbury in his textbook, also 2i, rated as a 10 out of 10 in philosophical difficulty. The other is the Sorites paradox, AKA the problem of the heap, Soros being Hellenic for heap or pile. This is teaser number one, powerful argument built on sand. Start with a pile of sand. Take away one grain, is it still a pile? Sure. Iterate a bazillion times. When did it stop being a pile on the way down to zero? The principle is that there can't be a justifiable all or nothing dividing line on a perfectly smooth continuum. After centuries of being dismissed, this paradox roared back to life in the late 20th century as vagueness linked with the late Professor Lotfi Zadek's fuzzy logic. Professor Sainsbury in conversation several years ago told me that the heap paradox would be at least a nine on his difficulty scale. We'll encounter three applications of it at the end of this paper. The last person to be treated in this survey of Hellenic unbelievers is Epicurus, who combined the materialist atomism of Leucippus and Democritus, the reality aspect, with a profound question about the morality of divine beings. For all the provocative nature of his argument, there is no surviving source in Hellenic. Not even a summary. The only full source is the Christian Latin father Lactantius in his tract On the Anger of God, written around 300 CE, some 550 years later. I've quoted David Hume's compact paraphrase to J of the argument itself, not Lactantius text. Epicurus's old questions are as yet unanswered. Is he willing to prevent evil but not able? Then is he omnipotent? Is he able but not willing, then is he malevolent? Is he both able and willing, whence then is evil? The ancient Hellenists were also astonishingly productive in many areas of science, but their most remarkable achievements came after the great Athenian period was over in what's called the Hellenistic era, following the death of Alexander in 323 BCE. Lucio Russo's wide-ranging and learned volume, The Forgotten Revolution, 2K, gathers sources for their work in a dazzling variety of fields. I'm merely citing from headings in his table of contents. Mathematics, geometry, optics, scenography, catoptery, geodesy, mechanics, hydrostatics, pneumatics, mechanical engineering, instrumentation, military technology, navigation, medicine, anatomy, physiology, botany, zoology, chemistry. Note also the two section titles on your page. There were ancient astronomers like Aristarchus who came to a heliocentric view of the solar system long before Copernicus and even speculated on an infinite universe. Having mentioned Rousseau's book, I should say that one area in which he's a little outdated is the wholly astonishing device called the Antikythera mechanism, on which there is a recent authoritative book by Alexander Jones, 2L, and even a PBS documentary. I've reproduced his diagram of circa 30 interlocking gears, a degree of engineering complexity no one had thought possible in the ancient world. Simon Winchester's brand new book, The Perfectionists, also at 2L, discusses the mechanism at the beginning of chapter one, something I recommended when he was here several years ago and said he'd never heard of it before. The Romans, on the other hand, were not renowned for philosophical, scientific, or abstract intellectual interests. Two quick examples. One, the charismatic philosopher Carneades created a sensation in 155 BCE when he visited Rome. He gave a speech praising the justice of Rome's growing empire, which was enthusiastically received until he gave another speech the next day, disproving everything he had said. The arch-conservative Cato the Elder in the Roman Senate proceeded to expel philosophers from Italy, not wanting the youth to become attached to words and theory rather than pragmatic military virtues. Number two, I can't resist citing one delightful crystallization of the non-intellectualism of the Romans from Carl Boyer's 700-page History of Mathematics, 2M. In the midst of a 152-page summary of Hellenic achievements, he notes that in 75 BCE, when Marcus Tullius Cicero was serving as quaestor in Sicily, he found the neglected and overgrown tomb of Archimedes, which had a diagram of a sphere inscribed in a cylinder, alluding to one of his most famous discoveries. Boyer says dryly, he restored the tomb, M almost the only contribution of a Roman to the history of mathematics after 150 pages. I'm very sorry to report that Boyer's witticism was removed from the third edition of the the book, revised after his death by one Uta Merzbach of Georgetown, Texas. By contrast, there are a few Latin writers who do have a place in this survey. Chief among them, Titus Lucretius Carus, contemporary of Cicero, who wrote the most extensive and focused attack on the traditional gods that survives from the ancient world, a six-book hexameter poem called De Rerum Natura, on the nature of the world. In particular, his praise of Epicurus, early in the first book, to N, is one of the most spectacular passages in Latin literature. My non-verse translation doesn't come close to conveying its force. The depiction of Epicurus as cosmically heroic, daring to fight against the traditional gods, break through the gates of nature, and in a pure act of intellectual imagination, wander through the immensity, is unlike anything readers of Latin literature had ever seen. It may annoy some people, especially those with expertise in Renaissance, Latin and Italian scholarship, even to mention the next book on your handout, Stephen Greenblatt's Pulitzer winning Swerve, with its memorable, if overstated, subtitle. But it was responsible for putting translations of Lucretius at the top of their Amazon category for a while, and even if very few ever made their way through all six books. Greenblatt deserves some credit for just getting people exposed to this unique work and its thoroughly unblushing secular materialism. I mention only in passing the Augustan poet Ovid, whose metamorphoses has a merry time recounting traditional tales about the gods without a trace of reverence. One line from his earlier Ars Amatoria, to O expresses pretty unabashed cynicism Expedit essa deos said expedit essa It's convenient that gods exist, and since it's convenient, let's pretend they exist. Let's imagine. One has to recall that revival of old time religiosity was a key part of Augustus' program, and the supremely urbane Ovid, for reasons unclear, was exiled to a semi-barbarian port city on the Black Sea for the last years of his life. His irreverence was probably not the primary cause, but it's a hint of things to come in the more ideologically driven Christian world. So the Hellenic world, in particular, produced abundant critiques of traditional theology, both from the standpoints of reality, atomism, and Epicurean materialism, and morality, the philosophical arguments. But other forces prevailed for more than a millennium. Number three, dark middle ages. I put dark in quotes because there are specialists who find the term demeaning, dark ages, but this section will show the post-classical retreat from reason. The transformation of the Christian religion, or maybe religions, From obscurity to dominance over the Roman Empire is one of the oddest stories in history. The subtitle of Keith Hopkins' book, 3A, says it very well, the strange triumph of Christianity. I'm not going to deal with that process, but its effect upon the intellectual world was extremely harmful. We've seen how much latitude ancient Hellenic thinkers claimed for free expression of ideas, not absolute, but more than most places and times. Now there could be only one truth, and it wasn't arrived at by observation of nature or experimentation or logical thought or even introspection, just alleged revelation, not subject to any kind of Socratic cross-examining. And yet there was serious conflict within the new religion from the first generation, because James, Peter, and the inner circle in Jerusalem, who had known the living Yeshua, the real name of Jesus, regarded Paul, who never set eyes on him, as an outsider, purveyor of false claims, and even crazy, Acts 9 and 26. Paul's own letters show there were splinter groups and divergent opinions, even in the early first century CE. Since there could be only one true belief, All the others came to be labeled heresy, an innocent word perverted by theological obsession, since in classical Hellenic, hieresis simply meant choice, with no implication that any one choice was inherently wrong. Those splinter groups proliferated at a positively astounding rate. By the end of the fourth century, we have two catalogs of heresies, 3b. One by Epiphanius, Bishop of Salamis, called Panarion, medicine chest, which covers 80 heresies, the other by Philastrius, called the Book of Diverse Heresies, containing 156. An elaborate translation of Epiphanius has been issued by Brill, but Philastrius has apparently never been published in English. I imagine most of you are aware that there were more than a few versions of early Christianity, but 156? Who was it who said, let a hundred flowers bloom? The Hellenic world didn't pay much attention to Christian claims, as we see from Paul's experience in Athens, Act 17. But a philosophically trained skeptic might have noted that the lack of agreement stemmed ultimately from a lack of evidence for their outlandish assertions. If you're curious about this bizarre period, two books by former Bible literalist Bart Ehrman, 3C, provide an excellent entry point. It was also in the late 4th century that Christians, six decades after their strange triumph, began killing other Christians, calling them heretics. The first was Priscilianus, put to death in 385 by secular Roman authorities in the Gallic town of Trier, primary reference at 3D. The ostensible charges were sorcery and immorality, but he had long been accused of heresy, and standard histories of Christianity call him the first fatality of Christian intolerance. Moving forward, the stereotype phrase for the dark medieval period of European history is the age of faith. But at the same time, there were skeptics and heretics galore and even a few hardcore atheists. In places where Christianity had not imposed a stranglehold, it was quite possible to reject their claims, sometimes in memorable ways. There's a pleasant story, 3E, about Radbod, the king of the Frisians in the early 8th century, preserved in a Latin biography of St. Wolfram. The king was about to be baptized into the Christian faith when he stopped the proceedings and asked Wolfram whether the great majority of kings and princes of the Frisian nation would be in heaven or in hell. On being told that the unbaptized could not be in heaven, Radbod stepped back from the font and said he would not accept being deprived of the company of the deceased leaders of the Frisians and that he couldn't suddenly abandon the beliefs and traditions of his own culture. One of the most entertaining, complicated, and obscure episodes in this period is something called The Book of the Three Imposters, described by French historian Georges Minois in his French title, 3F, as a blasphemous book that did not exist. In translating, the University of Chicago Press punched up that title, adding four sensationalizing elements, atheists, Bible, most dangerous, never. This is, of course, teaser number two. The story meanwhile tells is an incredible tangle of myth and history. Already in the 13th century, there were rumors of a supremely heretical tome that claimed Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad were imposters and all three Abrahamic religions were nothing but folly. Pope Gregory IX issued a ferocious denunciation of the book, which no one had ever seen, and its supposed author, Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II, who was excommunicated not once but twice in his lifetime. The first was rescinded when he was behaving better. At almost the same time, St. Thomas Aquinas called for unrepentant heretics to be executed, 3G, quoting, "...the Church, no longer hoping for his conversion, looks to the salvation of others by excommunicating him and separating him from the Church, and furthermore delivers him to the secular tribunal to be exterminated thereby from the world by death." This fully institutionalized suppression of thought may be the low point in relations between religion and freedom. George Colton's multi-volume history of the monastic era in Europe, covering the years 1000 to 1500, is written with an openly anti-Catholic bias, which means he gleefully includes episodes that do not redound to the credit of the church and its dogmas. His discussion of what might be called the proto-crusade against the Albigensians in the 13th century draws on a large collection of trial documents assembled by the Inquisition in the south of France in the same time frame as the two previous examples. I quote, via Colton, one of the most memorable passages recorded in Latin, 3H. The same Petrus, Pierre Garcias, said that if he got hold of that god who would save just one of a thousand humans that he himself had made and would condemn all the others, he would tear him apart and rip him to shreds with fingernails and teeth as a treacherous person and would regard him as false and perfidious and would spit in his face, spuret in facem eius, teaser number three, saying, may he die from the drop, apparently a French curse, qu'il meure de la goutte, His vivid defiance may remind you of the notorious Vanni Fucci in Dante's Inferno, also 3H, who made an obscene hand gesture called figs, and threw them in God's face, whereupon serpents come to magnify his torture. Colton notes that final salvation of all mankind was a characteristically Albigensian belief. The documents go on with another 15 pages of testimony against Petrus, apparently his own brother turned on him, without stating what happened, but there were no good outcomes for Albigensians, so he was probably executed for heresy, yet he surely would have said he was the true Christian. So the Dark and Middle Ages, a bit like the Romans, did not contribute much to the development of our main themes, arguments against divinity based on reality and morality but the attempts to impose a smothering dogmatism were bound to incite resistance when better information and a revival of old ideas came along to challenge orthodoxy, section four, Renaissance Enlightenment. With the coming of the Renaissance and Reformation, we enter into periods of even more intense conflict and divergent ideas, often promoted with a positively alarming level of fanaticism, especially to anyone who thinks that all the defenders of these religions were equal in being wrong. The broad outlines are familiar, I'm not going to redraw them, and in fact will be absurdly selective in coverage. The first of the three so-called revolutions, Copernican, seems to have begun around 1510, when he was compelled by evidence to reestablish the long ignored idea of heliocentricity. Although he did not publish his book until 1543, reportedly seeing its final pages on May 24th, literally moments before his death, popularizing account at 4a. The retreat of geocentricity continued with the work of Kepler and Galileo, and religious leaders lost one of the foundations of their system, the belief that Earth was the center of everything and the sole focus of divine attention. On the religious side, the unity of Western Christendom, already undermined by the great schism with the Eastern Orthodox in 1054, was shattered just seven years after Copernicus' discovery by Martin Luther's rebellion against the corruptions of the Roman church. His insistence on using and interpreting only the Bible itself, sola scriptura, rejecting Catholic emphasis on church tradition, opened a path for the later emergence of historical critical scholarship, which ironically has yielded devastating results for the adherence of literalism, whether Catholic or Protestant. The disintegration of European Christianity led to an efflorescence of splinter groups generically called Protestant that continues to this day. The second edition of Oxford's World Christian Encyclopedia, 4b, claims 33,090 Christian denominations around the planet although they apparently count the Catholic Church 236 times once for each country in which it appears. (laughs) This expands almost exponentially from those 156 heresies in the 4th century. Things could get pretty wild. Constitutional law expert Leonard Levy's massive book on blasphemy has several spectacular chapters on 17th century sects in England, including the Quakers, nowadays quiet and demure, who vehemently refused to submit to authority, religious or secular, and marched into other churches, sometimes stark naked, denouncing the congregations as doomed to hell. This multiplication of beliefs came a, became a recognizably English trait. 150 years later, poet Robert Southey provided a humorous list of heretical sects in England, 4D. I won't read all the names, but they're real. Even the Muggletonians and the Pedobaptists are in the Oxford English Dictionary. And you can see there's a problem. If only one can be true, how do you decide which? The Jeffersonian wall of separation, dating from the same decade as Southey's list, was in part intended to keep those sects from killing each other, which both Jefferson and John Adams thought would happen if any one gained control over the state. Offering even a bare summary of major enlightenment figures would be the the most superficial part of this superficial talk. So I will simply point to Spinoza, who led the way in abandoning the God of the Bible. Hume rejected miracles and said that when he heard a man was religious, he concluded he must be a scoundrel. Voltaire, who after the Lisbon catastrophe, ridiculed Leibniz's claim that this is the best of all possible worlds. Diderot and the Encyclopedist, who presented secular interpretations of reality. American hero, Tom Paine, who pilloried Bible stories. And Immanuel Kant, who showed the inadequacy of scholastic arguments for God. I jump now to number five, 19th, 20th, 21st centuries. The 19th century produced a sustained attack on the Judeo-Christian system from within, that is, by scholars who knew their texts intimately and applied rational and critical standards, undermining their historicity and exposing the complex background to the heterogeneous texts of the Bible. The foremost name is David Friedrich Strauss, who published At 28, a 1,400-page study in 1835, 5A, which was soon translated by novelist Marianne Evans, better known as George Eliot, its impact can be gauged from Albert Schweitzer's Quest of the Historical Jesus, also 5A, which surveys 100 years of work on the historical Jesus, but devotes 50 of its 400 pages just to Strauss and his opponents. Half a century later, the skepticism of predominantly German scholars had reached general recognition among the educated in England. Matthew Arnold, Oxford's first professor of poetry, showed the new attitude in a single phrase. Strategically placed as the final sentence of a popular edition of his book, Literature and Dogma, 5B, he said bluntly, miracles do not happen. That line turns up at the climax of the 19th century's most one of the most controversial novels today almost completely forgotten, Robert Ellesmere by Mrs. Humphrey Ward, born Mary Augusta Arnold, niece of Matthew Arnold. The title character is a minister who loses his faith, and at the moment of transformation, also 5b, quotes Arnold's statement, put in nested quotation marks with italics and an exclamation point. Gladstone himself knew Mrs. Ward well and complained of the book's harmful potential. He even reviewed it, helping make it the scandal of 1888. By that time, Victorian England had many unbelievers, one of the most outspoken being the lifelong maverick and social activist Charles Bradlaugh, who was elected to Parliament in 1880 but denied his seat when he refused to swear by God colorful as his life was, there's a post-mortem sidebar story that's so unusual I had to include it for your enjoyment, showing that hostility to Freethinkers can extend right beyond the grave. When he died in 1891, the impressive sum of 225 pounds was raised almost overnight to erect a monument in Brookwood, London's necropolis, 5C, and handout page 5. It had a fine bronze bust, which you can see in the old photograph at left. But in September 1938, one day before a World Union of Freethinkers Congress was scheduled to visit, it was stolen. And it remains missing to this day. The internet provides the photo at right showing the stump on which the bust was mounted. This is teaser number four, the decapitated gravestone. There's an extraordinary sidebar to the sidebar because Bradlaugh was an ardent supporter for independence for India Clark says most of London's resident Indian population came to his funeral. Among them was a 22-year-old named Mohandas Gandhi, who says in his autobiography, also 5C, that while waiting for the train, he overheard the heckling of a clergyman, that's his word, heckled, by an outspoken atheist, which only strengthened his distaste for atheism. The last 150 years have brought the reality-based critique of theism about as far as it can go, reducing geocentricity to a tiny shadow of its former self, and within my lifetime, consigning anthropocentricity to the dustbin as well. (laughs) The first stage in the latter process was of course the work of Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace, recognizing the principles of descent with modification and natural selection as unifying all life, implicitly rejecting the special creation of humankind and denying God any role in guiding evolution. By within my lifetime, I refer, of course, to the discovery by Francis Crick and James Watson of the double helix of DNA, first reported in 1953 in the most important two-page article ever published, 5D. Your page quotes one of the driest understatements in the history of science, surely from Crick. It has not escaped our notice that the specific pairing we have postulated immediately suggests a possible copying mechanism for the genetic material. The concept of divine beings operating in our world had been under sustained attack since the great Hellenic thinkers, an attack revived with new scientific evidence in the days of Copernicus and Galileo. But the Copernican revolution was only the beginning. As telescopes grew more powerful, the mere act of looking out into space became more mesmerizing and disorienting. Back in the 17th century, French philosopher Blaise Pascal said, 5e, the eternal silence of these infinite spaces terrifies me. Scholars still dispute whether the me in this isolated sentence represents Pascal himself as speaker or a hypothetical freethinker whose views he disagreed with. In any case, telescopes were still in their infancy in the mid 17th century, but it was already clear not only that the earth was no longer the center of everything, but that there was no vault in the sky, rather that as Pascal observed, space just goes on seemingly infinite. And the more powerful the telescope, the farther you see. There's a remarkably evocative footnote in the treatment of the 18th century astronomer William Herschel in Richard Holmes's excellent Age of Wonder, 5F and Handout 6. He cites a passage from an 1882 Thomas Hardy novel I'd never heard of Two on a Tower. I've cut and pasted Holmes's footnote in its entirety because it links the eras of Herschel Hardy, Edwin Hubble, and Holmes himself through the feeling he calls cosmological vertigo, teaser number five, which might occur in Pascal's day intellectually at the mere thought of spatial infinity, but for modern astronomers comes from real optical and psychological experience. I quote from Gail Christensen's Hubble biography, also 5F, because Holmes seems to be misremembering a bit when he says Hubble used to describe. The invocation of Buddha is not, at least in the passage quoted, attributed to Hubble himself. Note the absence of a page reference. But the general impression is surely justified. Even if you think, as people did until Hubble's day, that there is only one galaxy, its depth and emptiness radically undermine the comforting illusion of geocentricity. The phrase, only one galaxy, leads to a very special photo presented in original color, 5F and handout 6. Christensen calls it plate H335H, destined to be the most famous ever taken. I've copied it from a beautiful coffee table book on the Hubble Space Telescope. Dated October 6, 1923, it has the letter N for Nova in three places, but one has been crossed out and V, A, R, exclamation point added in red. Comparison with previous images showed that this star was a Cepheid variable, which meant that the Andromeda Nebula, thought to be part of our galaxy, was in fact another galaxy at almost incomprehensible distance from Earth. Nowadays, the estimate is at least 100 billion galaxies. That seems like a final dethroning of geocentricity, the process already begun with the heliocentric ideas of Hellenistic astronomers. The challenge to conventional religiosity represented by this intergalactic scale is clear if we see something like this, and you can't read it from here, but this is a Hallmark children's book with the title God is Everywhere, 5G, from 1968, four years after the discovery of the cosmic microwave background radiation confirmed the Big Bang. The naive title seems utter nonsense if we contemplate the cubic volume of the observable universe, which must be at least 10 to the 63rd cubic miles, one followed by 63 zeros from right to left. And its acceleration is expanding. Its expansion is accelerating. I like to say the universe is too big for God whereas most people still think God is shrink-wrapped around our planet and concentrated over the land masses. Modern theologians in evident desperation sometimes say God is outside the space-time continuum, but where's that? As a bridge to the final section, I quote mathematician William Clifford's famous line, 5-H, it is wrong always, everywhere, and for anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence which neatly links evidence, the reality aspect, to morality issues of right and wrong. It's now time to return to philosophical and morality-based arguments against theism, picking up where the ancient Hellenists left off. You might expect to hear about the much-publicized New Atheists, but I'm going to focus on people better qualified as philosophers, especially three items, 5i, written or co-edited by the late Michael Martin, Harvard-trained, and perhaps the most relentlessly rigorous opponent of protheistic arguments in the 20th century. The pages noted on your handout show that three of the traditional attributes of God, omniscience, freedom, omnipotence, contain inherent self-contradiction, and thus cannot be true. Plato's Euthyphro Dilemma and the Sorites Paradox of Eugolides have been recognized as problematic for centuries. Leibniz restates Plato's argument, 5j, paraphrased by Grayling back at 2i, but not everyone has heard of Plato. Seems odd, but true. Forty years ago, Yale law professor Arthur Leff produced an article, 5k, about the collapse of morality if there is no God imposing it from above. Each of the phrases I've quoted is its own paragraph in the original, so it's laid out vertically with content, I would say, highly unusual for a law journal. Eight years ago, two conservative Protestant theologians, starting from left's remarks, attempted to solve the dilemma in God's favor, 5K again. To date, their book published by the American office of Oxford, it seems much more receptive to these things, has had no philosophy journal reviews and only two in overtly Christian periodicals. One quote may show why. He, God, is essentially good, morally perfect without defect or darkness, It's an odd word choice. This means not only that he would never issue a command that would would break any inviolable or necessary moral truth, but that he could not. This is slippery territory. The limits of divine omnipotence were discussed in the notorious but little read Regensburg Address of Pope Emeritus Benedict 5L. Josef Ratzinger was a professor before becoming Cardinal and Pope, and his talk is impressively learned. You should look it up. Amazingly, he spends several paragraphs arguing against the claim which he attributes to Duns Scotus and the Muslim Ibn Hazm that God must be able, given omnipotence and absolute freedom, to invert all moral values. Both Bagot and Walls and the Pope respond by taking God's perfect goodness for granted, a procedure known as begging the question. In 2012, Galen Strawson, now here at UT, and Thomas Nagel at NYU had an exchange in the New York Review of Books, 5M, quoting Nagel, Galen Strawson offers what I believe to be the most powerful argument against the existence of God, the argument from evil. The theistic responses to that argument, of which I am aware, seem unpersuasive, and I find it hard to understand how belief in an all-good and all-powerful deity can survive in the face of it. So Epicurus's old questions are alive, well, and still unanswered. I had to add a brief reference, also 5M, to one of the most formative books of my undergraduate days, being a relic, this takes me a long back, a long way back. Walter Kaufman's Faith of a Heretic, superbly informed and intensely serious, and he too treats, treats the problem of evil as decisive against God. The other argument, Eubulides' sorites paradox, back at 2i, is also flourishing. Three recent articles, 5n, apply it in forms I call the embryological sorites, Kirchhoff and Waller, the ethical sorites, cider, and the paleontological sorites, mine, the only non-philosopher in the bunch. Kirchhoff and Waller undermined the idea of fetal personhood long before personhood amendments. I asked the question between us and Olduvai Gorge, who had the first soul whose parents didn't. And Ted Sider in the most important of the three argues that since humans must completely fill a spectrum from really good to really bad, even a very wise God cannot make an ethically justifiable all or nothing division anywhere on that continuum. So Eubulides too is alive and well after 2,400 years. I close with a relatively little known defense of the societal value of dissenting from conventional opinion from none other than John F. Kennedy, Five O. handout seven. Less than a month before his assassination, he was at Amherst for the groundbreaking of the Robert Frost Library. So one of his focal points is the poet's or artist's freedom to dissent. But it takes only a slight shift to extend his words to the freedom of thought that we have seen courageously exemplified from the ancients until today. His splendid remarks, regardless of whether Kennedy himself or someone like Ted Sorensen actually wrote them, seem both significant and achingly poignant in today's atmosphere of illiterate tribalism. They touch on other topics of high relevance now, elitism in colleges, the future of America, I've reproduced the speech in its entirety. You can read it on your own time. It'll make you painfully aware of how far we have fallen from Kennedy's eloquence and breadth of vision. But to end on a positive note, we have, as Steven Pinker insists in the earnest final pages of his book, numerous historical models for the deep values of reason, science, and humanism, and both the freedom and the obligation to exercise them in the quest for continuing human progress without fearing imaginary divinities. Thank you.